Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Peter Tatchell, and I'm really pleased to join you for Probably True. But I've got to say that everything that I'm about to say is most definitely true. <laughs> Peter Tatchell is something of a hero of mine, which is weird because unlike most of my heroes, he doesn't have a starship or a blue box. He's not even a billionaire playboy philanthropist with a dinky little goatee. He's just a bloke who does stuff. I've tried before to sum up why he's such an inspiration to me, but after listening back to our chat that I'm about to share with you, there's one line that really stood out to me as an example of why I look up to him so much. See if you can spot it. I'll tell you what it is at the end. This isn't really a normal, probably true chat, because Peter was doing the publicity rounds for his documentary called Hating Peter Tatchell, which you can find on Netflix and is very much worth a watch. Even if you don't enjoy the podcast, I hope you'll go and watch the documentary, because it's great for, like, LGBTQ history and shit. One thing I should mention is that there's a very popular saying about meeting your heroes, and I would adapt that slightly to be never meet your heroes over Zoom, especially if your equipment is held together by sellotape and swearing, which is another way of me saying that the audio in this one's a bit shoddy. Sozzles. I did the best I could. I hope you can enjoy it anyway, and if not, like I say, the documentary was made by actual professionals, so the audio quality on that's fine. This is Probably True, stories of queer life and even queerer sex. Please be aware that this podcast contains strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them. So I'm here to talk about the new documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell, which is out on Netflix. Featured in the film are Terry McCallan, grilling me <laughs> about my 54 years of activism but also snapshots from Stephen Fry and the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. George Carey. It is only a snapshot of the literally thousands of campaigns that I've been involved in over the last five decades. But I think it does give a good flavour. You'll see in the film bits about my two attempted citizen's arrest of the Zimbabwean dictator, Robert Mugabe, where myself and others tried to get him arrested on human rights charges, and I end up getting beaten unconscious by his bodyguards. But that was great in a way, because it showed how vicious his re regime is. The fact that they were prepared to beat up a peaceful protester in the heart of a European capital city in broad daylight, in front of the world's media, I think everybody concluded, well, you can imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. Also in the film was the interruption of the Easter Sunday service in Canterbury Cathedral, where myself and six other members of the LGBT plus group Outrage criticised the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. George Carey, over his advocacy of legal discrimination against LGBT plus people. He was not just simply saying that we were sinners and should repent. He was saying the law of the land should deny us equal rights. 
Another clip in there is about my confrontation with boxer Mike Tyson, where I called out his homophobia and, to his great credit, made a public statement condemning discrimination against LGBT plus people. So there's lots of stuff in there. Yeah, I think it's a very good snapshot, albeit only about a dozen campaigns out of the thousands I've done. Looking further into this film, for me, it was made because I wanted to highlight some of the various freedom struggles that have been going on in Britain and around the world over the last decade. So it's really about inspiring and giving people the confidence to go out themselves and be change makers. When it comes to my own inspirations, I've always been inspired by people like Mahendra Gandhi, who led the successful fight to end the British occupation of India in the 1940s. Also, Sylvia Pankhurst, the great suffragette leader, who not only fought for women's right to vote, but also for other women's rights, like maternity and childcare, better conditions for women factory workers, and so on. Another inspiration is Martin Luther King, who, of course, led the U.S. black civil rights movement in the 1960s and showed how peaceful, nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience could be a very effective tool for raising public awareness about discrimination, exposing the people doing the discrimination, and eventually persuading the president and Congress to end the discrimination. So those are my inspirations. They're the people who keep me going. In terms of my own motive and, I suppose, driving force, for me, it's very simple. I love other people. I love freedom, justice, equality. These are the things that really drive me onward. To me, solidarity is tremendously important. I always do my international campaigns in response to the requests of activists in those countries. They ask me for help and I give it. But at the end of the day, it's their battle and their fight. So you think about the millions of LGBT plus people in countries around the world who are living in countries where it's a crime to be LGBT plus, where there's no protection against discrimination or hate crime, and where their regimes are harsh tyrannies with no basic democratic or human rights freedoms. To support those people is so, so important. I've always seen LGBT plus rights as a global struggle. I can remember even when I first began campaigning at the age of 17 in 1969, I thought to myself, this isn't just a battle for Britain or Canada, the United States or Australia. This is a battle for every LGBT plus person on this planet. And we cannot rest until every person is free and equal. Over the years, as a result of my human rights work, particularly my LGBT plus work, I've had something like 300 violent physical assaults. I've been arrested 100 times, had 50 attacks upon my flat, including bricks, bottles through the window, three arson attacks, a bullet through the front door. I've been the subject of half a dozen plots to kill me, mostly from far-right extremists, but a couple from Islamist extremists as well. So I've had it a bit tough, but not nearly as tough as LGBT plus and human rights defenders in tyrant countries like Russia, Uganda, or Iran, or Saudi Arabia. They end up imprisoned, tortured, and sometimes even killed. None of that has happened to me. So I count myself lucky, although I've got to say, at times it has been very, very, very tough. 
it, it was like living through a, you know, a low-level civil war in the 1980s and 1990s. I, as a probably the best-known LGBT plus public figure, was the magnet for every homophobe, biphobe, and transphobe. I, I never left my flat without looking over my shoulder in fear of attack. You know, I had sleepless nights. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Cumulatively, over the last 54 years, it has taken quite a toll on my mental and physical health. Even today, I'm, I'm getting 2,000 messages and requests every day. Wow. Now, just to deal with that volume is absolutely exhausting. And sadly, I miss some. You know, I, I try to reply to everyone, but it is just, I, I, I go like a crazy drone sort of <laughs> replying to all these requests and messages. You know, I, I still do miss some. And it, it does leave me really, really tired. I'm, I'm working 12 to 14 hours a day, sometimes 16 or even 18 hours a day. And uh, I last had a proper holiday in 2008. So um, you can imagine how tired I am. But, and this is a big but, I love what I do. You know, it gives me great emotional and psychological satisfaction to know that I am making a small contribution with many, many other people to make life better. And I'm hopeful that here I am at 69 years of age, that I've got another 26 years or so. <laughs> I'm not planning to retire before I'm 95. <laughs> I might even go a bit longer if I can. That gives you a flavor of me and my life, much of which is encapsulated in the film, including some quite touching and uh, quite difficult moments with my mother, who is a fundamentalist Christian. She's an evangelical. She believes that homosexuality is wrong because it says so in the Bible. But on the other hand, she also doesn't see it as a huge, terrible sin. It's not like a major sin. She's saying if you love someone and you care for them, then, yeah, technically it is a sin, but you shouldn't do it. But, you know, <laughs> she does reckon that I'm, I'm doing good work. And she's always been supportive of me and my partner. So you see a bit of that in the film. And so that gives you a bit of a sense of where I've come from. The one thing I would say about my mother is that despite being, you know, quite on the evangelical wing of Christianity, one of the good things she did teach me, and it comes out of her Christian faith, is the importance of standing up for what you believe in. She's always said, don't just follow the crowd, do what you believe to be right. And that indeed is what I've striven to do in my life. I've followed my conscience. I've often said and done things that have been deeply unpopular. But, you know, I followed my conscience. And that, I think, is all anyone can be asked to do. So there you have it. That's the film. That's my life. Over to you, Scott. <laughs> wow. First of all, I feel like you should get a cake for 100 arrests. That seems like you should mark that somehow, I think. Very well done there. But only one standing conviction. <laughs> and that was for Easter Sunday in Canterbury Cathedral in 1998. All we did was just walk into the pulpit and criticize the Archbishop <laughs> over his support for legal discrimination against LGBT plus people. That's all we did. We didn't insult the Christian faith. We didn't abuse the Archbishop. But anyway, um, I was eventually charged and convicted with indecent behavior in a church. I hasten to add, I did not drop my trousers. Uh, <laughs> under the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act, part of the Brawling Act of 1551. I mean, if you're going to break a law, go for one of the really old 600-year-old ones, definitely, yeah. Absolutely, you know, nothing, nothing as common as behavior like to cause a breach of the peace or obstruct nah. the highway. This is a really good one. Now, I think I'm only one of a handful of people in the entire 20th century who were ever convicted of that offense. 
<laughs> well, congratulations. In fairness, you did try and get an appointment with him to talk to him at another time, but he just didn't respond. So all you did was pop into his place of work when you knew he'd be there. I think that's fairly reasonable. <laughs> You're right. I mean, for eight years, Dr. Carey would not meet with anyone in the LGBT plus community not even members of the lesbian and gay Christian movement who belong to his own Anglican church. So we thought, if he won't meet us, we'll go and meet him. And it made a huge impact. It was, it was a televised service around the world. So what we did got out to millions and millions of people worldwide. And the upshot was that he didn't entirely stop, but did dramatically reduce his public pronouncements advocating discrimination against LGBT plus people. He did meet with the lesbian gay Christian movement for the first time, and some other bishops in the church were horrified at what Kerry was doing, and they publicly spoke out in support of equal rights. So it had three positive outcomes, that protest. Talking about the church, I remember hearing someone telling me that when you announced that you were going to out some bishops, there was a huge panic in the church, and then when they found out you were going to out eight bishops, there was quite a lot of relief, apparently, because it was only eight and not considerably more. Maybe. It was actually 10. <laughs> and again, you know, it wasn't because they were gay and in the closet. It was because they were homophobic and hypocritical. Mm -hmm. They were saying one thing in public or aligning with a homophobic church while privately they were gay. And that's two-faced. And, you know, it deserves to be exposed. You know, we were defending our community against people who were causing harm. And again, the upshot was that, as far as I know, none of those bishops ever again spoke out against LGBT plus rights. And on top of that, the House of Bishops issued a very strong condemnation of homophobic discrimination. Yay. So again, two very positive results from that naming of the 10 bishops. One of the things I want to come back to is all of these attempts on your life, bullet through the door and cars driving at you and people trying to set your flat on fire and things like that. And being called the most hated man in Britain, and not even for anything particularly hateful, for trying to do good, does it not grind you down? It does at one level, but at another, it's sort of a backhanded compliment. The fact that I get all this hate letters and email, death threat, if I wasn't being effective, if I wasn't, if I wasn't making an impact, they'd ignore me. That's true. But quite clearly, I'm riling homophobes, biphobes and transphobes. I'm riling supporters of dictatorships in countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran, and so on. I got under their skin, and that's good. I, I, I take it as a form of flattery that they go for me. But of course, it isn't nice, because there's always the fear that one day, one of these bigots will actually seriously have a go and come at me with a knife or put a bomb outside my flat or you know something like that. So there's always that, always that worrying, nagging doubt. Which must also affect your mental state a little bit. I can't imagine it's fun to have that hanging over you all the time. Do you ever just think, I I'm tired, maybe I I'm going to take a, a month off and go and sit on a beach somewhere and, and drink tea? That thought does come into my mind <laughs> every now and then, yes. My solution is, I'm too busy to go off and have a holiday, much as I would like one. I watch a holiday program for half an hour and imagine myself <laughs> wherever the holiday program is visiting. <laughs> Bless you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you have any regrets? Is there anything that you regret having done or having not done? Um, pretty much all the time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I never feel 100% satisfied with anything I've done, even if other people say it's wonderful. I always think I should have done this or I could have done that better. With regard to outing, like naming the bishops, I don't think we got that right. It was partly beyond our control, but we didn't get the message out clear enough that we were only targeting hypocrites and homophobes. Of course, we did make that message, but you know, the tabloids in particular twisted it or ignored it. That, that, that battle was not as successful as it, as, as it could have been. I suppose overall, though, I, I wish I'd used outing you know, hypocrites and homophobes more frequently and, and started it earlier. <laughs> because as I said, it, it silenced the bishops. It shut them up. And maybe we could have done that with members of parliament who were voting against LGBT plus equality. We did eventually, in the mid-1990s, write to 20 MPs urging them to come out. We didn't threaten to out them, but we did urge them to come out, saying it was the moral, ethical, right thing to do, and criticising those who supported discrimination. Although there was no threat to out them, the fact of merely writing that letter made quite a lot of them suddenly cease advocating or voting against equality. So it had a similar effect, but I wish I'd tried that in the early 80s or something. It might have saved a lot of bad things happening. So people like Alan Duncan eventually you know, stopped voting against equality and he came out. The same with Michael Patillo. There's quite a few like that. You mentioned earlier the Mike Tyson thing. When he was doing his big public rant, there were some things in there that, with a slight change of tone, would have been quite sexy rather than scarily homophobic. All this was around the time that Mike Tyson was doing a world title fight against the British boxer Lennox Lewis. In the route to the fight, Lennox Lewis, batting away allegations that he was gay, said, I'm a man's man. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which is not quite what he intended. And Mike Tyson said of Lennox Lewis, I'm going to eat your babies, which is basically eat your cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not what, quite what Mike Tyson had in mind. Yeah, there's a clip in there like, I'm going to fuck you till you love me. I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to have this man who has been trained to essentially think with his muscles his entire life to then actually get within arm's reach? I was so incensed that no one was challenging Tyson over his homophobia that when I heard he was doing this world title fight in Memphis, Tennessee, I got myself a plane ticket and went over there with the intention of trying to ambush him. So it was a Sunday morning. I was there with two local LGBT plus activists. We lay in wait outside his gym and sure enough, half an hour later, he turned up. As he got out of his SUV, I walked over to him and challenged him over his homophobia. His first reaction was to turn and almost snarl and then raise this huge, gigantic, meaty fist as if he was going to deck me. But then he stole the cameras and put his fist away. <laughs> and then we began a dialogue. You know, he, he got quite defensive and saying, you know, I didn't mean to be homophobic. I was just saying that to wind up Lennox Lewis. Uh, I'm not really homophobic. And I said, look, if, if a white boxer was using racism against you, you wouldn't like it. So you can imagine that Lennox Lewis doesn't, doesn't like the slur of being gay or whatever thrown at him. Well, of course, being gay is not a slur, but the way Tyson was saying it was a slur. 
in the end, he said, you know, I'm not homophobic. I support gay rights. And I said, okay, well, will you turn to the cameras and say something? And he turned to the cameras and to his great credit said, I'm against anti-gay discrimination. So I think he is probably one of the first big super macho straight sports stars to ever speak out for LGBT plus rights. I think that's great because we want to make enemies into friends. You know, we don't want people to be enemies and keep on being homophobic and bigoted. We want to win them over. And I think it was great that Mike Tyson was, had the generosity and magnanimity to, to do that. Following on from that a little bit, at what time would you say was the scariest moment for you in your illustrious career so far? <laughs> there have been quite a few. I could um, imagine. <laughs> I remember I went to El Salvador in 1986 to uh, expose the human rights abuses there by the American-backed regime. And I was due to meet a priest in the main cathedral in San Salvador. Instead, I was met by three goons in green uniforms who lifted up their shirts to reveal revolvers and told me, if you know what's good for your health, you'll leave the country within 48 hours. Wow. And given the history of right-wing death squads killing journalists, priests, and others, I did leave within 48 hours. But by then, I'd got most of my story. That was pretty scary. I even thought they might have, they might know my, where my hotel was and might come and shoot, kill me in the middle of the night. Another big scary moment was, of course, the attempted citizen's arrest of President Mugabe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I, I ambushed him in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel in Brussels, I got a tip off that he was meeting a European commissioner in the hotel and that he had a 3 p.m. appointment to meet the Belgian prime minister. So I lay in wait in the lobby of the hotel from about 2 p.m., pretending to be a tourist, looking at scarves and ties in one of the little boutiques in the lobby area by the exit of the Hilton Hotel. When his retinue began proceeding through the lobby to go out to get into his limousine, I feigned being a stupid, clumsy tourist and walked into the middle of them. But I held up my hand to shake his hand and smiled, and that disarmed his bodyguards, who let me actually get right up to him, right close to him. And then I said, you're under arrest on charges of torture. I was grabbed, dragged off to the corner of the lobby, beaten mercilessly around the head by his bodyguards. Then the other bodyguard quickly shoved him into the big revolving door. Then they tried to push it to make it go faster, but it got stuck. <laughs> so they motioned to the bodyguards beating me up to come and help unstick the door. While they did that, I ran out through the fire exit and then confronted Mugabe on the other side of the revolving door. When it was eventually released, I was set upon and eventually beaten unconscious by his bodyguard. But I, I wasn't going to leave it at that. I knew he was going to the Belgian prime minister's residence. So when I'd got overcome my day's semi-conscious state, I got in a car and went to the Belgian prime minister's residence and stood outside shouting at the top of my voice, Mugabe is a murderer. Mugabe is a torturer, arrest Mugabe. And it was so loud, they could hear it inside the Prime Minister's residence. <laughs> Eventually, after about five or so minutes, his bodyguards came out again, <laughs> disbelieving that I was still <laughs> another go. But then they reached into their jacket. There was a police officer standing by. He said, run, they've got guns. Oh, shit. And then he tried to block them, but I just ran and didn't even look back. Fuck. I didn't succeed in arresting Mugabe, but... Uh, what I did did make headlines around the world and, and people saw those beatings and came to the conclusion, just imagine what Mugabe's doing when the world's media isn't watching. That's incredible. Did the righteous rebel image, was it helpful in yeah. you the right kind of attention from handsome young men? 
Not at all. Oh, bum. <laughs> oh. People ran a mile. Oh, dear. Oh, well. What would your advice be for anyone wanting to get more involved in fighting the good fight? Apart from, obviously, like, retweeting things and sharing stuff on Facebook, which is useless. Well, I wouldn't say it's useless, but, you know, it has limitations. Well, my starting point is that every social change comes about because people say, I've had enough. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I want to do something to change this. So the history of change is that individuals can play an important role, but ultimately it's really collectivities. It's masses of people coming together that makes change happen. You know, we all have a role to play and together in numbers, we have an amplified role to play and we can join together with others. Whatever the issue that you feel strongly about, it could be the climate crisis, might be LGBT plus rights, it could be workplace rights through a trade union. Whatever the issue is that concerns you, join with others because your collectivity makes you stronger. So we've seen Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. These have all been mass movements of millions of people which have had a real impact on public consciousness, helped to reset the dial. So I would say, you know, join an organization, that be a physical organization where you attend meetings and protests or online work has its value. I don't think it's enough, but, you know, signing an online petition, you know, amplifying the voices of activists in faraway countries who perhaps don't have much social media presence, who perhaps don't have much media coverage, you telling their story or repeating their story for them, that can really help and, and be an impact and it's appreciated. I think also it's really important to remember that sometimes you do get quick results. So when we did the petition to get a pardon for Alan Turing, the great mathematician and codebreaker, that online campaign, we got tens of thousands of signatures and very quickly the British government agreed to organise his pardon. That was the result of an online campaign. But it's often not as easy as that. So you need to be prepared for the long haul and don't expect an instant result. Keep inputting your bit and your bit together with others That's what will really make a difference. And I look back over my five plus decades and I see so many positive changes. Apartheid in South Africa, which we were told was immovable, there to stay forever, nothing was going to change. White supremacist state was just too strong and too powerful. It is now history. And it shows that things that seem of insurmountable odds can eventually change. I would say that Anybody who's interested, please have a look at my foundation's website. It's petertatchellfoundation.org. On the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says join us. If you give us your email address, we will send you a weekly bulletin of LGBT plus and other human rights stories, mostly serious, but some funny, quirky ones as well sometimes. And if you feel able to, next to the join us button, there's a donate button and you can make a small donation or a regular small standing order. That really helps us because we don't get any government or institutional or corporate funding at all. We depend entirely on donations from well-wishers and every bit helps. When you look back, at what point would you say was your your happiest moment? So far, obviously, let's not assume you've peaked. (laughs) Well, I'm always happy when a campaign is successful. I'm happy that it was successful, but I'm also happy for the people who will benefit from that success. I'm happy for them that they're going to have life easier. There's also been some protests that I found particularly joyful, like the early protests of the Gay Liberation Front that I was involved in from 1971 to 74. Those protests were such fun. They were street theatre 
protest as performance, a carnival, a spectacular. And the same with a lot of the outrage protests in the 1990s. Very imaginative, very inventive, often very humorous. I can remember we did the big kissing in Piggly Circus in, I think it was 1991, or I say we, I mean outrage. And that was to defy the way in which the police were arresting same-sex couples for merely kissing. And so we organized a mass kissing in defiance of the law to demand that the law change. We publicized it in advance. We gave the media people to interview who'd been victims of this kind of law, and they told their personal stories. And we found that most members of the public, even ones who were not particularly pro-LGBT+, were sympathetic. They thought this is absurd for the police to waste their limited resources on arresting same-sex couples for merely kissing when they claimed they didn't have, didn't have enough resources to deal with uh, racist attacks, sexual assaults on women, queer bashing violence, and so on. About one hour before the protest was due to take place, we got word from the then Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Paul Condon, that no same-sex couple would be arrested in London for merely kissing, cuddling, or expressing affection. So we won even before the protest took place. <laughs> so the kissing actually became not so much a protest, as a celebration. And we gathered a crowd of hundreds of people to watch. Lots of people heard about it in advance on TV or radio or read it, that it was taking place in the press. So we had a crowd of probably close to a 1,000 or more people watching. And they were cheering and blowing whistles, clapping. It was, it was a fantastic, uplifting moment. Even better, or just as good, about a week later, we had a phone call from a Japanese tour company. They said, you know, we were in Piccadilly Circus last week and we saw your kissing. It was lovely. All the Japanese tourists from Tokyo absolutely adored it. When are you having the next one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. Just because you'd won that cause, essentially, didn't stop you all having a good old snog in public, because why not? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Any excuse for a good kiss. I'm with you on that one. And it's Pride Month as we're recording this. I hear you've got plans for reclaiming Pride. That's right. As everyone knows, Pride in London has been postponed until the 11th of September. So there's no official Pride parade this June or July in London. But myself and particularly veterans from the Gay Liberation Front in the early 1970s, we believe that Pride should go ahead and we want to reclaim Pride for the community. Our view is that Pride has become too corporate, too commercial, and pretty much devoid of any political or human rights agenda. We want to put all that right. So we're organizing a Reclaim Pride march, which will be a joyful celebration, a carnival atmosphere, but with a very strong political message like ban conversion therapy, reform the Gender Recognition Act for trans people, protect and give asylum to LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution, solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Those kind of issues will be front and center of the Reclaim Pride march. It's set for the 24th of July in London, and we're going to finish with a gigantic queer picnic at the end of the march. So there's no stage, no speakers, just a DIY queer picnic where everybody's being, going to be asked to bring their own food, drink, sweets, and music. And we'll have a gigantic picnic in the park. That will just mirror what the Gay Liberation Front did on the very first Pride March in 1972. So we're going to recreate that this time. And I think we're going to be able to show that the community's appetite is for a community-led event. Corporate support is welcome, but we don't want the commercialization that's overtaken Pride in London and many other prides. We're not here 
as pink consumers to be exploited for our pink pounds. We're here to defend our LGBT plus human rights. More information will come out via my petertatchellfoundation.org website and also through our weekly email bulletin. And we're currently in negotiations with other organizations like Stonewall, uh, UK Black Pride and others. So I'll finish with my motto. And it's very, very simple. Don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. So that was my chat with Peter Tatchell. The bit that really stood out to me that illustrates why he's a bit of a hero to me was this bit. I was so incensed that when I heard he was doing this world title fight in Memphis, Tennessee, I got myself a plane ticket and went over there with the intention of trying to ambush him. He didn't just roll his eyes. He didn't just tweet about it. He got on a fucking plane and went and did something about it. He put himself in harm's way and he made it right. Is he perfect? No. He's just a man. I'm sure he's as much an idiot as the rest of us. He's just as fucked up. He's just as fallible as everyone else. And that doesn't matter. That's not the point. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that he sees something in the world that he knows to be wrong and immediately does what he can to fix it, to make it right, to make it better. And in doing so, he shows the rest of the world that another way is possible, that we don't have to just sit back and take all of this shit. And that's why he's every bit as much a hero to me as a Starfleet captain or a madman in a box. Because he makes me want to be a better person. And that's what heroes do. I wish I was half as brave as him. And not that I'd do half the stuff he's done. Jesus Christ, no, I'm allergic to being punched in the face for one thing. It's a medical condition. I've got a note from my mum. Anyway. Hating Peter Tatchell is on Netflix, so please go and watch it. There's links to the Peter Tatchell Foundation in the show notes, as well as details on the Reclaim Pride March, which is happening this weekend on Saturday the 24th of July here in central London. I'll be there. Hopefully I'll see you too. I'll be the one awkwardly not talking to Peter Tatchell. That's it for this special bonus episode. I'll be back with the next season as soon as I can find some more sellotape. Bye! That was Probably True, the multi-award-winning storytelling podcast created to remind all of our queer siblings that we are none of us alone. If you like what you heard and you want me to keep doing it, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash probably true. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.